2: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today are our Transfer Market insiders and pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Manchester United target Brazilian international defender Eder Militao from Porto as Jose Mourinho looks to rebuild his failing Manchester United defence. But will the Portuguese manager survive to make January deals happen as United's Premier League slump continues? Chelsea may look to make a statement signing by grabbing American star Christian Pulisic from Dortmund. We look at why a FIFA investigation may trigger a big money January spend. And we bring news on how political pressure could force the Premier League to act on sovereign state ownership. OK, well, we're going to start with some Manchester United transfer news. And Duncan has a story on a Brazilian international who's on Jose Mourinho's list.
0: Yes, uh, the ongoing uh, multi-year search for a, a reliable uh, defensive Uh, heart of Manchester United's defence centre-back that Jose Mourinho has been conducting since he got to the club. Um, Another uh, name that they are looking at um, and he's proposed as an option for uh, January is FC Porto's uh, Eder Militao, who's a a 20-year-old only signed by Porto in the summer from Sao Paulo. Uh, They got him in Uh, very good terms San Paolo received 4 million euros for the deal plus 10% of the the sell-on because he only had uh, 6 months left in his contract he'd been watched by a number of English clubs beforehand he was on um, uh, quite prominent in Manchester City's recruitment list but Porto were prepared to take um, what was seen as a gamble on him at the time He's pretty much uh, not quite gone straight into Porto's central defence, but he got into the team quite early in the season and has been an absolute fixture since. They're um, top of the Portuguese league and they're top of their uh, qualifying group in the Champions League going into the games this evening. Um, and he's uh, there's a general acceptance that he's going to go well beyond the level of the Portuguese league. Uh, Mourinho likes him. Obviously, as we've discussed um, in this podcast, on several occasions, what Mourinho really wants is experienced, top-level defender who is ready to lead the defence immediately. But I think the fact that Milletown Towns being considered as an option on his side uh, tells you where the club is. Again, um, it tells you that the board are more likely to do something with a player who is younger, who would cost less money. Um, Porto would ask for a big... Uh, profit on this, but it's not going to be any, anywhere near the cost of, for example, signing um, Kaladu Koulibaly from Napoli, who's who's basically top of Mourinho's list as for the, the, the you know that experienced option, ready-made option. Um, and he's and I think because he's looking at alternatives like this is telling you that he's not certain, uh, not by any means certain, that he's going to get funded properly uh, in January, if at all. Um, we talked about uh, Matthias de Ligt, um last week uh, and I think Ian um, told us how uh, Mino Raiola had offered de to, uh to Manchester United and, and that um, Ed Woodward had been quite keen on that deal. Um, he, as we, as we said, is, on, um, is also on the list, but I think if you contrast Milletown to de that you're looking at a vast difference in price. Um, I did a piece for the record on Ajax and on what is their amazing track record of bringing top players to the Premier League, particularly centre-backs, and was asking um, a contact at Ajax about De Ligt and uh, was told that they they think they can take 100 million euros um, for De Ligt and also for um, Frankie de Jong, who Manchester City and various Spanish clubs have been looking at as a midfield recruit. So, um, we, we talked about how it would probably be difficult to get to left anyway because his preference is to move to Spain. But you, in Millie Town, there's um, a player similar age, um, developing talent that Mourinho is proposing as an alternative if he can't get what he really wants, which is the experience sent back in January.
1: What I find about in, uh, intriguing, Duncan, about this particular um, potential transaction is. The fact that Mourinho is clearly willing to compromise what he wants in order to fit in with what the Manchester United board are asking for or are demanding, i.e. that um, he doesn't buy a player who is older and will hit the ground running and who has Premier League experience um, because and with potentially no resale value like Aldo Vareld, for instance, Who's 29, and if you give him a four-year contract, then there's going to be no resale value there. And you got to, with, with Mourinho's character um, and his modus operandi, he doesn't compromise at all, really. He, he, he you know, he's very, very well known for not um, giving in to other people's points of view and for saying that his way is the only way and his way is right. So. In targeting a player like this, um, it seems to me that he is almost accepting the fact that he's tried hard to recruit the kind of player that um, he believes is the right one for Manchester United. But that in doing so, he has failed um, to get his way and instead now is willing to come a certain way into the middle ground and say, okay. Mila is someone who is young, who has got potential, who we can get cheap, more cheaply, and who I can develop. And I think that's very, very interesting. Um, and what, is, what do you think it tells us about Mourinho's mindset, uh, Duncan, with regard to going forward as Manchester United manager? Because as I said, compromise is not always on his agenda.
0: I think, I think very much his strong preference is for the experienced defender. He's going to push for that. But this is kind of like a backup strategy for him. And it, and it does. I think you're right. It tells, tells you that his position is insecure at the club. And um, it tells you he knows that he, there's a good chance he won't get what he wants. Um, and um, this window could be extremely important to him because the club... Um, the team is underperforming. The you know, defensive record in the Premier League is appalling for a Mourinho side. I think it's 21 goals conceded in, in 13 matches, which is pretty much unheard of from a Mourinho team. Um, he's you know he's gone through the reasons why that's happening. He's, he's they've been trying to play in a more expansive game. He's not been able to get a settled partnership because uh, players like Baye and Jones uh, develop muscular problems. Um, and he, and he, he's felt that he needed to put two players together, which he did, and he's done for the last, I think, seven games, in, in Lindelof and Smalling, and got an improvement, nowhere near perfection, but an improvement in defensive performance because of it. But now Lindelof's injured, and he's he, he's looking at that issue again. But yeah, I think um, look, we we you, it's not hard to see every time a result goes against um, Manchester United, that there uh, is a clamour for him to be replaced as manager. Um, and, you know, as we, as we talked about several months ago when the stories were were going around, that he was going to be sacked um, for definite after the Newcastle United game, regardless of the result. Um, there had been a meeting uh, between his agent and Edward Woodward ahead of that game, and, and, and his agent had been told we're, not, we're still supportive, um, we're not uh, planning to change the manager, but results have to improve. Um, and, and Mourinho has been working with that in mind, that he's under pressure to get results. And most important of all, under pressure, to qualify for the team for the Champions League. Um, their Champions League performances have actually been better than everything else, but um, they, he, he has been unable to get a consistent run of performances and results. From this team, um, and he knows he has to turn that around. So, uh, when it gets to that kind of scenario, um, compromise is probably going to be necessary in in the transfer market uh, to get on, because he knows he doesn't have absolute faith of the of the board anymore. So, it's something better than nothing. I think that's the that's the the thinking on Mourinho's part at the moment. An improvement well- is better. The ideal improvement.
2: What about the way he's been going about that? Obviously, the comment that you made with regards to the team lacking heart was one that suggests that uh, he's in a place where he feels like he needs to really, really dig out his players to get performance out of them. Is that ever going to work in today's modern game?
0: He has he has dug out the players. Um, earlier in the season, I think after um, is it the Brighton defeat... Um, Forget which which game uh, specifically it happened, but one of the poorer performances early in the season. He did uh, take them in uh, to the training ground subsequently and basically read the riot act in front of them um, and and did it in in a more um, thorough manner than anything he's done at Manchester United to try and get a reaction from them and yes it's it's true he's making comments saying that there wasn't uh, enough intensity uh, or a lack of heart on the field um at the crystal palace game um you know his argument was that they he'd set the team out well tactically given them a game plan to play crystal palace in it, and it was working early on in the match and i, I, mean, I do i watched that game uh, on television and I remember the uh, um the the commentator Saying you know how well the tactics were working in the early early period of that game, commenting on how he'd switched Pogba's uh, position in midfield and how it's working for them, but then they fell away, and they they really did implement poorly, and I and I think it I think he, that that criticism of a lack of intensity is justified from the performance in the game, but really it's it, it, it doesn't actually matter what, whether Mourinho is right in these comments anymore. He's he the one who is responsible for the team and he's the one who's taking the flak and if there are changes fundamental changes to be made at Manchester United the the likelihood is if the results keep going this way the fundamental change will be of him regardless of whether he's right in his, in his analysis of what is wrong with the with the site which I think you know personally I think he is correct and I think he's 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 pointed out a lot of the deficiencies I also thought it was interesting ahead of the the Champions League um Press conference uh, uh, yesterday, when he you know he was repeatedly questioned on on the problems of the team and what had happened in the Crystal Palace match, and he and he said look said to the, the journalist, I don't want to talk about this anymore. When I'm open with you, and when I try to analyse things with you, and when I try to be honest with you, they're always the illuminated that criticise me because of that. So I think it's better not to speak too much, and I, and I think he he really is in a position where unless the results go for him, he, there's virtually nothing he can say without without being criticised for what he says, if it's of any interest whatsoever.
1: And I also think, Duncan, um, we've seen um, part of this story before when uh, Mourinho's been at a club and, and results decline uh, and degrade. And through one thing or another... It, the criticism of the players begins to to leak out through in his press comments. It's true that they get um, magnified or extrapolated in certain quarters of the media with regards to what he says and and what he actually said. But for you know, I've, I've, our listeners have heard me say this so many times um, that if you give a player an excuse to fail, then he'll fail. And unfortunately, when you openly criticize your players in public rather than in the dressing room. It generally tends to be a kind of last resort of um, how I'm going to try and deal with the, this particular situation on the pitch as it multiplies and as it becomes more and more of a problem. And in doing so, it's a battle, in my experience, you cannot win. Very, very few managers have been in a position where they've, uh, like Mourinho's, where they've had Manchester has the worst start uh, to any league campaign in 28 years and survived um, that for very long. And so when Mourinho consistently criticises his players, no matter how subtly he does it and no matter how um, much hyperbole is then um, given to that criticism, it's the criticism still there. The basis of what he's saying remains to be there to be analysed and to be interpreted. And To me, that's someone who is definitely fighting a a, a retreat in terms of the battle, and I wonder what the core, the core problems are at Manchester United between in that dressing room, and Jose Mourinho. Lots of people speculated that he's yesterday's man; that he, he, you know, his comments about players being too um indulged or spoiled was a, a word which was taken out of context in that particular south american television interview but unfortunately players will not respond to that anymore they will see that as an insult because of their lifestyles because of the narrative of their lifestyles now uh because of social media and the way that they want to portray themselves uh in you know this very sort of constituted and privileged world, which they enjoy. There's no way that players are self-critical. Very, very few players are grounded these days, whether it be an academy player, right through to a first-team player in a top-six club. They're not interested in in um, in people's opinions about them being, oh, a good guy or this or the other. They're more interested in the fact that they do have wealth, they get allowed to flaunt it, and they are well paid for what they do. And we saw from Mourinho's... Um, reaction to Paul Pogba's video, which was um, Derby County's uh, EFL Cup defeat, the way that he responded and trained the next day, uh, regardless of what the timings were and everything else, the bottom line was he was very, very critical and negative about the fact that video had been posted at all. And he felt that that would have been an insult to him and to the club as a whole, whereas Pogba just saw it as a bit of fun. And so these little things which appear to be insignificant can actually become um, part of a momentum which has got Mourinho and his players in a position to where they are now. Whereas there, there are some who support him and there are some who are loggerheads with him. And the general interpretation is that he doesn't understand or doesn't want to understand what the modern player is about. And so he's trying to go back to basics now. And so, in consistently trying to constructively criticise his players about certain things and certain parts of their attitude, unfortunately now is seen as him slating them um, and therefore a man on some kind of suicide mission who's already pressed the trigger. Uh, I don't see it that way, but I think that's how it's being portrayed. And I think that is p- possibly one of the most dangerous and certainly one of the most um, sort of telling parts of how the story comes to an end.
0: He's certainly, he's certainly not trying to get himself the sack. I mean, that, that uh, theory's been going around for a while um, and it's not the case. He knows the importance of this job to him and to his reputation. So so that's not the thing. I think I think one of the key issues here is um, is the quality of the players at the club. Um, you know, if you look, uh, for example, at Chris Mulling, who's actually had... A relatively good season by his standards. Chris Smalling is now being touted for a new contract at Manchester United. He's, you know, he's played more at centre back than anyone else at Manchester United this season. He's now on his fourth Manchester United manager, and he has never established himself as an absolute guaranteed starter through an entire season. Um, who is, you know, an unquestionable uh, leader. Um, and, and, and powerful figure in that defence. And, you know, you've got to ask questions about that. And you've got Phil Jones, who's in essentially the same position. He's been through the same number of managers. He's been at the club for almost the same length of the time. And he's even further away from establishing himself as the um, dominant centre-back at Manchester United, which is what he was signed for. If you remember when he, he was... Um, he was bought by Manchester United. All the top clubs in England were chasing him because he was being billed as the, the next John Terry because of his uh, his physique and the way he played the game. But he, he's you know he's he's no more than a squad player who usually spends a high percentage of the of the season injured. Yet he's still there, so you can understand why why a manager um, with the expectation level, with the desire to win that Jose Mourinho has, placed in a situation where. Um, you know, anything other than winning the Premier League is regarded as um, a, a massive failure on his part because it's Manchester United. Um, not because of, not because there's a consideration of the players there, but because of the name on the badge of the shirt those players are wearing. You can understand why he's frustrated and why why it's such it's become such a challenge for him because it's it's hard to manage in those circumstances. Full stop.
2: There has been a drop off though from last season, hasn't there, Duncan? Would you would you accept that? I mean, obviously they came second, and they're they're sitting in seventh now. They are seven points away from Chelsea, sitting in fourth place. Already a bit of a gap growing in terms of that Champions League place that's so important for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you could say that that you know Mourinho is culpable for part of that in the sense that a lot of a big element in this is the the kind of internal war that went on inside the club over the transfer market in the summer. So, you know, he, he came back in pre-season and, and fought a war to try and get better um, recruits, at, specifically at centre-back. And uh, the fallout of that war was a bad start to the season, um, which has continued into them being, you know, too far too far off the pace in the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, it, it has been worse. And you can say that, that Mourinho has a degree of culpability for that. But you can also argue that it, that degree of culpability actually shouldn't be there because it's clear to anyone who understands football that United do not have a good enough um, options at centre-back. They do not have a top-class central defender, experienced central defender, which is what he was asking for. And as a result of that, they struggle to compete. Um, so, you know, yes, he caused the problems, but what fundamentally caused that problem was the board saying, no, uh, we're not going to sign those players because we don't think they're good value. We think the five centre-backs currently at the club are all better than the options being proposed, which include Toby Aldo And And um, uh, we would sign you a centre-back and we would spend lots of money on them, but it's got to be uh, someone like Raphael Varane um, who... Mysteriously, Real Madrid didn't want to sell to us when we, we tried to sign him in uh, a few weeks before the transfer window closed over, over a, a baguette in a, an American hotel.
1: In, in terms of perspective, though, as well, we should say that you know Duncan and I, Johnny, discussed the shortcomings of Vimerick Laporte and John Stones um, on the podcast in the past. And, and those are two players who actually have stepped up you know, in recent uh, weeks to play very well for Manchester City. Um, and so I guess if you want to be Red Devil's advocate, if you want to put it that way, put my horns on uh, at the top, and then I would say, well, what's Pep Guardiola done, done differently with Laporte and Stones that Josie's not managed to do with uh, Lindelof, okay, who's now injured, and by Because uh, those two players have become better players, albeit, obviously, they tend to have less of the ball because of the attacking players ahead of them.
2: OK, well, we're going to move on now to Chelsea and their pursuit of an American star playing in Germany. Duncan, tell us more.
0: Yeah, they um, are looking... or well, I've been working on this deal um, for over a year now. It's Christian Pulisic who um, has very much signposted his um, intention, desire, expectation that you'll leave Borussia Dortmund. Uh, before too long Uh, he's got one and a half years left in his contract he's refused to uh, sign a new contract at Dortmund Um, Dortmund are aware he's going to leave their public stance is that they won't allow him to leave before the end of the season what's interesting with Chelsea I think is that um, they might be under pressure to do this deal in January because of um, they're under investigation uh, not for the first time by FIFA um, for um, signing players underage, um, the the disciplinary panel within FIFA who is investigating this case and has good evidence on it, and I think it's pretty clear that they are going to be found guilty of this. Now, um, they are pushing for not just a a single window or a double window transfer ban; they want four windows of transfer ban because it's a because of the scale of um, the transgression. Um, uh, with uh, I think fourteen players' um, transfers being investigated, um, and and also because they've they've had to look at Chelsea before. Um, Gal Cucuta was uh, an example of a transfer that was uh, investigated by FIFA in I think two thousand and nine. Uh, Chelsea managed to avoid or get themselves out of a transfer ban then by essentially paying off loans, the club they, they've taken him from as a 15-year-old um, to to make the case go away. But certainly it has to come into Chelsea's considerations that there is a real risk that they will not be able to do um, any transfers for at least a year after this after the January window. Um, as we've talked about many times in the podcast, they've got no certainty at all that Eden Hazard will remain at the club. Um, Eden has been pushing for a move to Real Madrid. Real Madrid are very interested. He did say, talk this week about um, this past week that uh, he didn't see himself leaving in the January window because that would not be fair on the club. Um, And there's a possibility that he could stay longer term. But um, the consideration for Chelsea has to be the the risk of losing a player who is their most most important attacking force. And as I say, they've been working on. potential replacements for uh, not just Hazard but William for over a year was Pulisic um, who's young um, very skillful um, and uh, also very attractive for Premier League clubs because he's basically the biggest name and most marketable name in American um, football American soccer at present so uh, he comes with the potential of of uh, lots of commercial revenue on top of whatever talents he can produce in the field, which, as we know, is always appealing to Premier League clubs these days.
1: I, I think that's correct, Duncan, and I also think that um, the current uh, it, sort of uh, let's just difficulties regarding FFP and how that is going to play out as well. Um, Paris Saint Germain and Manchester City um, investigations more generally will put pressure on this next market and therefore players like pulisic uh, and others will uh, the prices will be much higher because everyone in european football knows that clubs like chelsea psg city are under scrutiny for certain um rules and the ones that they've transgressed and therefore prices will be higher the market will become more intense and indeed, the market's already become more intense because of what information I've had um, through um, the agent channels, etc., and through clubs in the last even just two weeks, is that, that clubs like Chelsea are desperately trying to recruit um, in this window, at a time and in a window which they wouldn't normally get involved in, or in a high stakes or high financial um, climate they will do so because they believe that there's a potential transfer ban coming their way. Um, So it's going to be very interesting, I think, over the next um, six to 12 weeks with regards to deals that are trying to be done and the money that is going to change hands. So Ian, what have we seen in the past in
2: terms of actual length of bans? Because we believe that there are five Premier League clubs uh, being investigated currently by FIFA.
1: Well, what we've seen, Johnny, is is a fearlessness about FIFA in terms of the names that they have punished. Um, Both Madrid clubs, Atletico and Real, along with Barcelona, have been handed down bans of two windows. Um, Real Madrid was reduced to one. But these are very recent bans and have set a precedent with regards to the illegal recruitment in FIFA's eyes of young players outside of Europe, um, mainly from South America in the case of the Spanish clubs. Now, with five clubs under investigation in the Premier League, but Chelsea being the most prominent, um, I believe there are questions both not just to be answered um, but certainly uh, there is a very very high risk of of bans being greater than the ones handed out to the the three Spanish clubs on the basis that if you're if you're really able to um, punish you know three of the most elite clubs in Europe with those kind of um, uh, punishments and and then if other clubs realise that that is what's at stake, then the only way to go is to increase those bans in order to get some kind of modicum of um, stabilisation in terms of the rules and to warn other clubs off of doing the same thing. So Chelsea can, I think, expect uh, what Duncan said, which would be a four-window ban, effectively would be two years. Now, they can appeal against that, but I, I, I genuinely think that the... Um, in in terms of Chelsea, they're expecting something and uh, and they will act in January to try and circumnavigate at least a little bit um, what the impact will be on their club. Now, let's be clear for, for everyone and for our listeners specifically, if a transfer ban is announced, then you cannot recruit players at all at any level um, to uh, to join your club. So in losing Aidan Hazard, which they could do because clubs, you know, they are allowed, clubs are allowed to come in and buy players from a club under transfer ban. It's not the case that, because obviously, under European law, players would then could appeal to the European Court of Human Rights with regards to the freedom of trade. So Hazard would not be banned from leaving Chelsea, but Chelsea would be banned from recruiting someone to replace him. In terms of that, then Pulisic is not just desirable for Chelsea in January, he's actually essential in terms of their recruitment policy, to um, negate that potential hazard move to Real Madrid because they will be unable to recruit anyone afterwards in the summer transfer window to replace Hazard, who clearly, even just through his performances this season, has shown himself to be the Chelsea's most creative and most important player. Um, people will say, well, is this fair or not? Because, you know, if... Clubs can see the punishment coming. Is it fair that they are allowed to to buy players? Well, it's just the same as any walk of life, really, isn't it? You, you've got to try and do what you can to um, abnegate the uh, the potential uh, consequences of something which is is upcoming. So, in which case, uh, as I said, I I can see January being a busy window, not just for Chelsea. But as I said, the possibility of FFP um, regulations and therefore punishments being imposed on PSG and on um, Manchester City, I think we'll see more, even though Pep Guardiola said last week there'll be no incomings. I I, I don't don't see that being the case. I think there will be as well. Um, as clubs effectively uh, do the uh, the old Brexit, let's talk about medicines, et cetera, Just in case we get no deal. So in this case, it's uh, we will get punishment. So uh, they're they're going to be doing that again. That will inflate the market. It will make it more interesting for all of us, obviously, to talk about. But it will also be a direct response to the the threat of bans uh, coming their way in the next six to eight months.
2: There's no danger of a no deal scenario, though, with Josie in charge of the Brexit negotiations.
1: Absolutely not. No, he he will get Josie. In fact, you know what? I think Josie will probably appear on the live debate with Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Theresa May, which we'll come to later in the quite round.
2: Okay. Well, um, moving on, the situation of academic Matthew Hedges, who's just been released back to the UK after being imprisoned in the United Arab Emirates, is likely to exert some political pressure on one of our clubs here.
1: Yeah, it's something which, you know, we always have um, whispers in the uh, so-called corridors of power with regards to multiple situations, which um, often affect sport and, um, and our clubs as well, Johnny. And um, we have um, a very uh, sort of active DCMS, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, and we've included digital uh, recently, in that title as well, uh, they're quite a strong, powerful committee, uh, quite quite a lobbying committee as well, with regards to their role in the UK government. And uh, my information was that um, they were consulted uh, during the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's, uh, let's just say, um, their um, applications and their um, certainly their remonstrations with the United Arab Emirates. Uh, foreign office and government departments regarding the uh, life sentence handed down to uh, Matthew Hedges, the UK academic, who um, this week received a pardon from his life sentence, having been sentenced to life imprisonment only eight days ago. So uh, a massive U-turn, if you like, with regards to the way that uh, justice was dispensed in the UAE. But the fact of the matter is, if you have an owner... In um, Sheikh Mansour, who is a member of the ruling family um, of the Emirati, uh, and who is also um, clearly the sole shareholder in a club like Manchester City, a club that invests billions of pounds in in players and and also into the club in this country, then there is a little bit of um, leverage that you can obviously apply with regards to how things may or may not turn out in political decisions which are have emanated from the UAE so it's just interesting because obviously we've had uh, discussions recently about the um the European clubs association and their uh, particular um arguments and protests against uh, alleged um breaches of financial fair play by Manchester City and and Paris Saint-Germain we shouldn't forget Uh, So it's just one of those things which raises the question, because the only legislation that, if you like, is controlled in this country with regards to football and ownership is the Premier League's fit and proper persons test. Now, it's been the case for some time that um, uh, human rights groups uh, have um, made representations to the UK government regarding um, Sheikh Mansour's ownership of Manchester City. Uh, and the human rights record that they have there as well, and so what you see now is this this what, we, what you said was sports washing sports washing is effectively uh, an acronym for yeah for for making something um shiny and new um and effectively uh you know without uh any kind of stain if you like uh, to continue the pun um when in actual fact there there's maybe dirty washing there in, as well. And so the uh, the human rights groups have been lobbying uh, the UK government with regards to Sheikh Mansour's ownership of Manchester City. Um, that's now moved on a little bit of a notch now because DCMS, uh, some members of that committee, have been asking questions uh, of the Premier League with regards to fit and proper persons tests and saying, you know, can you actually uh, justify the fit and, pro- per- fit and proper persons test you have currently with regard to the UE ruling family and the fact that they own and invest so heavily in Manchester City. So I'm not saying that there's any kind of, you know, action coming this time soon. But and the fact that Hedges as well has been given this, um, this uh, presidential pardon means that it, it does calm what could have become choppy waters. But, you know, it's one to look out for in the future because it's it's one of the ways, if you like, that... The uh, the pressure or the politics of both um, government and sport interrelate, and you know one should never underestimate uh, what can happen with regards to those conversations and the power that that wields.
0: I think it, I think it's definitely a source of potential embarrassment to the Premier League, um, which you know it, its reputation is is based on the product and it's based on the entertainment. Uh, involved is based on representing itself as the as the greatest league in in world football and and selling that product um, worldwide. And the Premier League has had issues in the past with with owners that um, have you know essentially destroyed clubs. Um, if you look at Portsmouth, what happened to them under uh, Guy Mac's ownership um, and where they 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 descended to as a result of his overspending. Um, and ironically, they had a big problem with the previous Manchester City owner, owner um, in Shinawatra, and uh, essentially were, were their fit and proper person's rule was called into question over Shinawatra because, uh, again, ironically, because of his human rights record as the former president of Thailand. And um, they weren't able to do anything about it at the time because he, had, he, he hadn't been found guilty of any crime at that point, therefore, he passed the fit and proper persons test. But uh, I, when you take it away from the actual letter of the law, it seemed to most people that he certainly wasn't a fit and proper person to, to run a football club. And as I understand it, and there's some interesting comments from uh, from uh, Scudamore, the, the outgoing chief executive of the Premier League, subsequent to that sale to Abu Dhabi, um, the Premier League put a lot of pressure on and, and a lot of work behind the scenes to ensure that Shinawatra was moved out of Manchester City before he became too much of an embarrassment and, and effectively facilitated the sale of the club to Abu Dhabi, who again ironically um, about a year later uh, stripped uh, Shinawatra of his position as Honorary Club President because of his human rights record. So. I don't think this, you know, it can only stay away as long as people don't pay attention to it. And when something like the Hedges incident occurs, um, what has been an ongoing campaign against um, the human rights abuses in Abu Dhabi by the, the, the people that he mentions turns into something that became the lead news, the lead story on the BBC News, um, and went straight into the consciousness of the nation and resulted in the Foreign Office taking action to not have that the charge against them and and the um, the fact he'd been found guilty and imprisoned to life um, stripped away. Uh, the, the UAE are insisting that he was still one hundred percent a um, operative of the UK government, a spy, but to be pardoned, so they they managed to get him um, out of the country and out of jail, but. I don't see I, I, I say that I don't see it going away um anytime soon if some a similar situation comes up and the questions are asked again. And the pressure in the Premier League, as Ian points out, will increase once government start starts asking questions about owners of football clubs. And once you when you have a scenario where nations are buying football clubs, you get these kind of political problems, especially of nations of this type. And you know, we talked a few weeks ago about Manchester United. Um, and Saudi Arabia's interest in buying Manchester United, this is very relevant to that because Saudi Arabia is another uh, nation with extremely questionable human rights record. And if um, the Premier League was to tighten up its rules under government pressure about ownership, then you can forget about, I think, Saudi Arabia ever being allowed to, to buy um, the, the wealthiest club in English football.
2: OK, guys, one of the surprise packages of this year's Premier League season has been Watford, and there is some good news afoot for their manager, Duncan. Tell us more.
0: Yeah, the manager, um, Avi Garcia, um, has agreed a new long-term contract with Watford. Um, and It's been trailed for a little while. But what um, I understand is that the length of that contract is going to be a lot longer than anyone has expected, particularly given... Uh, the reputation of the owners of the club since they since they took over Watford of of uh, hiring and dispensing with um, with uh, managers and coaches at a rate of knots. Um, they, as I understand it, they want to make a point of showing their faith in Gracia and um, and to make a point of the fact that they are prepared to invest in in coaching talent as well as uh, talent on the field, which is what they've been so, so successful at. At Watford and how they've managed to establish Watford as a you know as a, as a strong um, and regular contender in the in the Premier League and one that's capable of getting uh, towards the, the top end of the division so I'd say watch out for that um later in the week and 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 you'll probably get um, a shot by just how many years um, they give Rasio on his new deal um, and uh, and where they they see him taking the club um, down the line
1: I've heard, Johnny, um, that by uh, relative terms, it could be a life sentence for Garcia, <laughs> which, which you know, which given that he's in Watford, you know, may well feel like time well done. Okay.
2: <laughs> Apologies to offence for anyone from Watford who might be listening. Okay, guys, we're going into the quickfire round now, and um, in the spirit of the just-announced TV debate between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn on Brexit, we're going to look at the footballing superstars um, that would make a great debate and who they would make a great debate with. It'll make sense once we start. We're going to start with Duncan, Josie Mourinho.
0: I, I like the concept of this. I mean, that's kind of a journalist dream to, to get two antagonists together and sit them down in the room and just listen to them uh, uh, argue their cases out uh, between each other. And I think, I think if you're asking for Josie Mourinho, there are... Um, there's there're quite a few people you could you could pair him with. Um, you know, Jamie Redknapp would be quite amusing for one, um, and uh, maybe Sky should think about that one. But I think if you the absolute number one choice at present has to be Paul Pogba. Um, you know the, the the player who's had to be shut down from uh, talking after games because he keeps having making a derogatory comments about his manager and his, his tactical selection. And I think if we could throw Mino Raiola in the room too, it would be absolute television gold.
1: Ian, Pep Guardiola. Uh, Jory, Pep Guardiola is a difficult one, isn't he? Because he's the man with no enemies in football, Um, (laughs) and so uh, uh, unlike the enemy of football across the city. So it's it's a hard one to find um, someone who would take issue with Pep, other than maybe God himself, um, who might just have the odd question about you know you know peps dress sense or something so i would in the interest of complete entertainment and uh just watchability i'd get our very own duncan castles on the live tv debate with pep and uh, watch our very own graduated doctor um prescribe all the things that's wrong with pep and all the things that he could do to make it better (laughs) (laughs) well we had a little go at that last Season when we asked him
0: about his transfer spending, I think some people find that quite entertaining. Uh, if you look back in the, the the previous podcast, indeed, yes, are you
2: allowed back? That's the question.
0: Uh, that is the question. Yes. <laughs>
2: okay, Duncan. Next one is Neymar.
0: Uh, Neymar. Um, well, who doesn't? Who does uh, Neymar not get on with? Quite a few people, but. If we were to choose the most entertaining debate, I think it has to be Neymar in a room with Edson Cavani explaining why he should have all the penalties and he should have all the free kicks and they should never, ever be in a practice match against each other. And I think, I think you, Johnny, have got a good story about why that why that's the, the case.
2: Yeah, well, indeed. I mean, anyone who watched the Brazil versus Uruguay friendly that was on recently would have seen uh, Neymar scampering down the wing only to have the giant figure of Cavani charge towards him and take him clean out. Not only that, just to rub salt into the wounds, Cavani leans over Neymar, gives him a hearty, what can only be described as slap, and then wanders away, mouthing obscenities in Neymar's direction. So if anyone has any doubt how they uh, get on, you just need to have a look at that clip on Twitter.
0: I thought you were I thought you were going to tell me that Neymar had made a tackle. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been something to behold. That's how much he dislikes Edison Cavani.
2: (laughs) Okay, and we're going to round this off with Ian and Mo Salah.
1: Well, again, Johnny, Mo Salah, the like most likable guy in football, a bit like Pep, you know. Who does he have enemy? Well, no one really, because he's, you know, all smiley, lovely guy. Everyone loves him as well, except the nemesis that is Sergio Ramos. And let's face it, Ramos, you could put in a live TV debate with anyone and he'd probably clean them out within about 10 seconds, never mind have a debate with them. Uh, But I'd love to see uh, Mo Salah effectively square up mano a mano to Sergio Ramos, making each hand for each of the players and say, right, okay, let's just clear this Champions League final debate up. Did you actually try to do me? Or was it, as you claim, just part of the game? And after that, I think we could have some of the most compelling television until such time that Sergio Ramos wiped him out again.
0: Would we also be televising the uh, post-debate drug test?
1: Okay, we can definitely cut that out of the edit. (laughs) I was going to say,
2: if you ask uh, Sergio Ramos who would like to be picked with, it would no doubt be Ian McGarry after his uh, cancer comments SRAMOS
1: <laughs>
2: that was you holding back Ian it
1: was me holding back
2: <laughs> and with that I'm slamming this particular transfer window shut just a reminder we are looking for a sponsor so if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand get in touch through our social media channels To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account so everyone who follows will get a follow back. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at CarboSJ if you want to speak to us individually. And if you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us to reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.